certainly appreciate Brother Tim's message this morning. It uh, certainly made me want to be in the house of the Lord for sure to make my calling and election sure. You never make it sure to God. It's been sure with God ever since he did it before time began. But in our experiences, how important it is to make our calling and election sure. It's when we come to God's house and hear his word, be with his people, meet with the Lord, that we're encouraged and strengthened. Um, last week I spoke to you concerning uh, God delivering the nation of Israel out of the land of Egypt. We dwelt primarily with the ten plagues as it led up to plague number ten, which is death of the firstborn. And then we know that God instructed Israel to keep the Passover, as this became to be known, uh, perpetually. And that's when, of course, uh, he instructed them to take a lamb, a firstling of the flock, and they would take that lamb and set it aside from the tenth day to the fourteenth day. And then they would slay the lamb after it met all divine specifications and take the hyssop and take the, and dip it in the blood, put it on the side post and the lentils. And then at midnight, God passed through and God passed over. As he passed through, he passed over where he saw the blood. Not a single, not one, not a single firstborn of the Israelites perished and not a single firstborn of the Egyptians was spared. What made the difference? Well, of course, it was the blood. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Christ, even our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Now, I would like to kind of pick up a little bit from that this morning. Uh, I want to go, first of all, uh, take a look at what the Lord told Moses in Exodus 3 and 12. He told Moses here, he says, I'm going to send you to the land of Egypt. And then he says, certainly I will be with you. Notice this, certainly I will be with you. And this shall be a token. He says, when you have brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, ye shall come to this mountain and serve me. Now, it didn't sound like there was going to be any doubt in the mind of God that Moses was going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt and then bring them to the mount, that's Mount Sinai, where they was to serve him. Now, a lot took place between Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 19. If you go to Exodus chapter 19, you will find that's exactly where Israel is now. They've been delivered out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of the Egyptians, and they've had many miraculous experiences, and now they're at the base of that mountain in their position to serve the Lord. Now, let's take a look in chapter 13 just for a moment. In Exodus chapter 13, three different times we find this expression, by strength of hand, the Lord delivered Israel out of the bondage of the Egyptians. Now, it wasn't the strength of Moses' hand, it was the strength of God's hand. Three times in this chapter we're told that by strength of hand he delivered them. And then when they came out, then we find where he took the bones of Joseph with him. Now why is that important? Because as we read the book of Genesis chapter 50, Joseph uh, told his brother, when God shall visit you and bring you out of here. See, there was no doubt in Joseph's mind this was going to take place. And bring you out of here. He says, you take my bones with you. And so Moses carried that request out when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now about 270 years later, you'll find in Joshua chapter 24, where Joshua buries the bones of Joseph in the land of Shechem. So his request was 
carried out by Moses, and then Joshua. Then we're told that the Lord led them in a certain pathway. Now, the Lord is going to lead them out of Egypt, well, a pillar of a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. Now, this is the first supernatural intervention, uh, you might say miraculous intervention, I want to bring to your attention. There was a cloud, a pillar of a cloud in the daytime that led them. A pillar, it became a pillar of fire at night to give them light. And we find, uh, as the Lord divinely directed them, that he took them a long route instead of a short route. There was two ways he could lead them. The short route took them through the land of the Philistines. Now, we're prone by nature to always take shortcuts, aren't we? Uh, we're just prone to do that. Uh, I find, uh, you know, people who... Uh, in every area of life, actually, always want to take a shortcut. And that usually means the person coming behind has got to take care of the mess that the people took the shortcut and made when they took the shortcut, especially in the building process. But I've taken a few shortcuts in life trying to get from point A to point B, only found out I'd have been better off to took the long route. I'd have been better off to took the interstate rather than the back roads. We're prone to take shortcuts. But God is not going to take them by the short route. He's going to take them by the long route and tells us why. He says if you took the short route, you'd go through the land of the Philistines. And he knew they could not do that without confrontation. He knew they could not do that without a battle taking place. And at this time, the last thing the children of Israel needed to see uh, or be engaged in was a battle and be in a war. So he takes them by the long route. He leads them again by this pillar of a cloud in the daytime and a pillar of fire at night. When the pillar moved, they would have moved. When the pillar stopped, they would have stopped. That's simple. The more I study the Bible, the more I realize how simple God's instructions are, how simple God's commandments are. It's just a matter of knowing them and doing them. And God never gives a command that he doesn't give the grace and the power to carry it out. Always remember that. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the courage. Whatever it stands, you stand in need of, God will supply it for you. Now, we come into chapter 14. We're going to find where Pharaoh and them, after they realize, after the plague of the, of the firstborn, at, at, at that time, Pharaoh now is actually trying to rush Israel out of Egypt. But prior to that time, eight different times, Moses come to Pharaoh requesting for him to let Israel go, let God's people go, and he would refuse to do so. But after the death of the plague, or the plague of the firstborn, we find where Pharaoh was very anxious for them to leave the land of Egypt with their families and their cattle, the whole nine yards. He's going to give them their full request. But after a little time goes by, Pharaoh and the people realize you know, what they're missing, what they have lost in the children of Israel leaving there. So Pharaoh's going to try to recapture them. And so Pharaoh takes his army. He takes all of his horses, all of his chariots, 600 chosen chariots, and they pursue the nation of Israel. Now Israel has come to a point where they have the Red Sea in front of them. And now they are able to detect that Pharaoh and his horses and his army are very close behind and says they were frightened. And they came to Moses and they said, did we not tell you it'd been better for us to have lived and served the Egyptians in Egypt rather than make our graves out here in the wilderness? Now, this is an indication of the attitude that the Israelites would have throughout their history. They were thinking about going back to Egypt. 
how quickly they thought, forgot about the oppression, how quickly they thought about the bondage, how quickly they forgot about the captivity, how quickly they thought, or forgot again, uh, you know, of the rigorous uh, task that Pharaoh had placed upon them. If you go to Psalm 78, you will read a summary in the 78th Psalm of Israel's travels from coming out of Egypt throughout their travels in the wilderness on the way to the land of Canaan. God brought them out that he might bring them in, okay? But here's something you need to pay attention to. It said the nation of Israel remembered not. The nation of Israel kept not. The nation of Israel trusted not. And the Israelites' heart was not right with God. Now I've come to find out in life that the heart of every problem is a problem of the heart. Always remember that. The heart of every problem is going to be a problem of the heart. And Israel continuously had a problem with their hearts and their service to the Lord. They forgot, they remembered not, they trusted not, they kept not, and their heart was not right with the Lord. Come to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 3, and you'll find where Paul exhorts the Hebrew Christians of that day that uh, they were to take heed and not be like the Israelites were uh, when they came up out of the land of Egypt in their travels in the wilderness. It says, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation. And exhorts them that their heart might not be a heart of an evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief kept many of them from entering into the land of Canaan. But let's go back here in chapter 14 of Exodus. And we find where the children of Israel are greatly frightened. But God gives a message to Moses. He says, you tell them to fear not, but stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now the Bible tells us there's times that we are to be still, sometimes we're to sit still, and sometimes we're to stand still. On this occasion they were to stand still and what? And see the salvation of the Lord. I want you to notice shortly the things that Israel saw and what they did not see. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, for I will fight for you, he says, and ye shall not see the Egyptians anymore. Here's what they're not going to see. He says, I will fight for you. Then he tells Moses to tell them to move forward and for Moses to take his rod that's in his right hand and to stretch it out over the sea, which he does in obedience to the Lord. And the Bible says that God sent a strong east wind all that night and it blew upon the Red Sea and it parted to two great walls of water. Now, Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in the first four verses. He said, I not have you ignorant, brother, and concern our fathers who passed under the cloud through the sea and were baptized unto Moses. You got the two great walls of water and the cloud overneath, and Paul is pitching this as a baptism. They were coming under the authority of Moses, was under the authority of God. He said, they did eat of that spiritual meat. They did drink of that spiritual drink. And they followed that spiritual to rock, which was Christ. Now, we're going to look at something they ate and something they drank, Lord willing, in just a little bit. But here, Paul is teaching this lesson to the, in the New Testament over here to the church at Corinth. So we go back there, and we find where he stretched forth his hand, God sent the strong east wind, divided the waters, and Israel would cross over dry shod. If you read Psalm 77, he gives an account of this. 
And he mentions in Psalm 77 that God also sent a great rain. Now, when the Egyptians tried to follow, it wasn't dry land. Israel crossed dry shot. It was dry. But when the Egyptians tried to cross, the bed of that sea had become very, very muddy. And the Bible says that God took the wheels off their chariots. I, I like that expression. It doesn't tell us, doesn't give us the specifics. It was just God took the chariot's wheels off and they bogged down and they come to the realization that they need to turn around and try to flee because God was fighting Israel's battles. They should have already known that. What, what, where do you think those 10 plagues came from, right? God was fighting Israel's battles. And so as they turned to go back, God told Moses to stretch forth his hand again, which he did. And the two great walls of water came back upon the Egyptians, and they all perished in the Red Sea. Now this is the part, the last two verses of Exodus 14 I mentioned earlier uh, to give the illustration of our Bible verse. It says, the Lord saved Israel that day. Now God sent Moses to bring them out, but the Bible says the Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord saved Israel that day, and the Israelites looked and saw the Egyptians on the seashore. But the, also the Israelites saw the great work of God. So what did they see? They saw the salvation of the Lord. They saw the great work of God. They saw the dead Egyptians on the seashore. But what they did not see, would not see ever again, was live Egyptians. They would never see them again. There's a, th a lot of things in life that when uh, it comes our time to leave this world, we'll never see again. We'll never see again sorrows and heartaches and sad farewells. We'll never see physical afflictions again. We'll never see heartache and heartbreak ever again. I see them now, but there's coming a day when I will see them no more. Because God has delivered his people and saved his people from their sins and from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, one day the presence of sin. And there's coming a time when you'll not see them ever again. And that'll be uh, a wonderful day, will it not? Now the Bible says this was a night to be remembered. And God wanted them to remember it perpetually throughout their history. And that's why he set up the Passover. Now after they're brought out of there, you're going to come to the 15th chapter, and here's the first biblical song on biblical record. And you're going to find where the Bible says, And God, and excuse me, Moses and Aaron and the children of Israel sang this song unto the Lord. When you come to the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. Our song service this morning was designed for all of us to sing to the Lord. We're singing to the Lord. God wants you to sing to him. Now, if you look at this, song, this uh, 15th chapter real closely, you find divided into four stanzas, you might say. The first five verses talk about the victory Israel had in the Lord. And it says, God is my salvation. God has become my strength and my song. Three different times in the Bible, you find this is the theme of the song that Israelites sang. You come to Psalms 118, verse 14, same thing. The Lord is my salvation, the Lord is my strength, and the Lord is my song. Three S's. 
used to be a product called the 3S tonic, you know. I don't know if that's still around or not. But uh, people used to like it, thought it helped them out a lot. I don't know what all the S's stood for, but I'm telling you what these S's stand for. They stand for salvation, they stand for strength, and their song. It was a song of praise. Then you come to Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 2, you find the same thing. God has become my salvation, He is my help, the Lord Jehovah is my strength, He's become my song and my salvation. Three different times, they sang it in Exodus 15, David sang it in Psalms 118, Isaiah and the Israelites sang it years and years later in Isaiah chapter 12, and then he follows up by saying, therefore with joy shall we drink of the waters of the wells of salvation. Now I believe we have 66 wells here today in the Bible, 66 books. Each book can be a well for God's children. We can draw water out of the wells of salvation. All 66 books are going to point to you that God is your Savior, that Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And when you drink out of these books, you're drinking water that God has provided for you. Okay? So that's what the 15th chapter is all about. Don't go into the details this morning. But right now we see the supernatural intervention of God in delivering Israel from the greatest uh, army, from the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, that was Egyptians. God steps in and delivers all his people, dry shot across without the loss of one. And while Moses led God, led Israel across the Red Sea and delivered them without the loss of one, he's a picture of a greater deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivered his people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue without the loss of one. Without the loss of one. Old Baptists proclaim that all whom Jesus died for will be in glory one day. Not one that he died for will be lost or left behind. That's worth coming out to hear, isn't it? Isn't that worth rejoicing in? Coming out to hear that kind of message of God's wonderful, amazing, and miraculous grace? I believe it is. Uh, it's worth me to come out and say it anyway. <laughs> so we, we have, um, in, the, in the latter part of uh, chapter 15, you're going to find as they now are begin their wilderness travel. Now they're starting on their pilgrim journey, heading toward Mount Sinai. That's their designation. You're going to find they go three days without water. Now one day without water is not good. Two days is worse, and three days is bad. I'll have to admit then they found water, but it was bitter water. They call that place Mara. Now they begin to complain, and Moses does what any good leader shouldn't do. He goes to the Lord. And the Lord tells him to cut down a tree. Showed him a tree, says, cut down the tree. And the tree, when you put it in the water, will make the water sweet. Now here is bitter water made sweet. You know, uh, that's kind of what life is, isn't it? a series of bitter and sweet experiences along the way. It's a balance, is it not? Trials bring burdens. But you know, burdens can make you better or burdens can make you bitter. We are, and it's up to us to decide which way it's going to be. Is this trial going to make me bitter? Is this trial going to make me better? Uh, the Lord will balance things out in your life, I can assure you. And so now the water that was bitter... The water now is sweet. And notice what happens right after that. He brings it to a place called Elam. When he gets to Elam, there's 70 palm trees and 12 wells of water right out there in the desert that just miraculously appeared. 70 palm trees, now they got shade, they've got water, and they've got rest. It kept getting better, didn't it? 
Ephesians 3.20 says, And unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. Uh, there's, no, there's no ceiling when it comes to God's blessings. There's no uh, capping off, you might say, right? That's why David said in Psalms 23, My cup, what? My cup runneth over. So God takes care of the water situation to begin with, and that quieted Israel down for a little bit. Their history was one of this. As long as things were going along fairly well, uh, then, you know, they didn't say much. But when things didn't go so well, they murmured and they complained. Now, God proved that he could take care of their needs when he caused that water to be made sweet and then gave them the oasis there in the wilderness in a place called Elam. But chapter 16 opens up. It says, the whole congregation of Israel murmured against Moses and them. Not just one or two, the entire lot of them. All Israel murmured against Moses. Why? Because now they've gotten hungry. Well, I tell you, I, I don't like to be hungry myself. Uh, you know, and I have found out, uh, if you want to find where people can get real irritable real quick, it's when they get hungry. Because once they get hungry... Then they get hangry, you know, now they're angry with the hunger, and now they're hangry instead of just angry, and that's not good. And so they're getting angry and hangry now with uh, Moses. Moses goes to the Lord, and here's what the Lord says he's going to do. He says, I'm going to rain quail down from heaven for you. You'll eat that in the evening. And I'm going to rain down something else for you in the morning. It's called manna. Now, I've noticed when God feeds his people, he feeds them twice a day, never three times. It's always twice a day. Maybe there's a lesson in that. Twice a day. When he fed Elijah with the ravens, it was in the morning, it was in the evening. When he fed Elijah later on when he was asleep and he prepared a meal for him, it was in the morning, it was in the evening. Going to find here where he's going to, uh, going to take care of Israel. He's going to feed them in the morning. He's going to feed them in the evening. Nothing in the middle. Now, Israelites were acquainted with quail, but they weren't acquainted with manna. This is the first time they've ever seen it. The first time. And this manna is going to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what are we, what are we seeing so far in this? What we're seeing is that God knows how to direct his people. God knows how to deliver his people. God knows how to provide for his people. God can take care of his people under any situation, under any set of circumstances they'll ever find themselves. Now, he gave some instructions about this manna. He says, you uh, go out and gather it every morning, an omer, which is two quarts. Not two quarts, every morning. Don't gather more than that. Two quarts per omer for every man. It depends on how many people in your household, depending on how much you gather. Larger households gather much, Lesser households gathered less, but they all gathered what they stood in need of. So they went out every morning for the first five days and gathered an omer. But on day six, he says, I'm going to give you two omers because there will not be anything given on day seven, which is the Sabbath. This is the first time that the seventh day is called the Sabbath day in the Bible, right here in Exodus chapter 16. The word Sabbath means rest. So he says, nothing's going to be given to you on the seventh day, the Sabbath day. You gather twice as much on day number six, and because I'm going to bless you to be able to gather twice as much on day number six. But you know what happened, Bible readers, don't you? 
There were some who thought, well, you know, if I gather more than two numbers on day one, I just won't have to go out on day two. But the Lord said, anything you have left over will spoil, it will stink, it says it will ruin, it will not be fit for consumption. So when they tried that, what God said came to pass. Then you got those a little on the lazy side. And so on day six, they just gather an omer. They don't gather two, thinking, I'll just get one today. I'll go out tomorrow and get my other. They go out on the Sabbath, seventh day, the Sabbath day, there's none there. There's none there. God miraculously sent the manna down from heaven. That's one way it's a type of Christ. Where did Christ come from? He came down from heaven. It was small and circular, and it was white, and it was sweet. All that points to the Savior. All, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds to a, what? A believer's ear, the hymn writer said. That manna was sweet to the taste. It was white, pitching the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless nature, sinless life of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was enough nourishment in those two quarts of, of bread there, that manna, that it lasted them until the evening when the quail came down. And so this all points us. In fact, you go to John chapter 6 in the New Testament, you find the Lord Jesus Christ bringing a contrast between him as the bread of life with the manna that the Israelites ate there in the wilderness. That manna lasted them and sustained them only in a physical way. But the Lord Jesus Christ is life eternal. He is life eternal. And the nourishment that that, that um, manna gave to the Israelites got them through the day, day by day. See, every single day, they got up early and went out there, and they experienced a miracle of God. Every single morning, there was a miracle of God. Every morning you get up and the sun is shining, that's a miracle of God. They experienced a miracle of God every single morning. But if they got up late and went out there, they didn't get anything because the sun would come up and melt the manna. I want to ask you a question. What does Abraham, Jacob, Joshua, David, Samuel, Job, and the Lord Jesus Christ all have in common? Now, they got a lot of things in common. What do they have in common about this? You'll read in every one of their lives where it says they arose early in the morning. Every one of them. They arose early in the morning. That was true with Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Jesus Christ. They all rose early in the morning. Those who rose late went home empty because the sun done come up and melted the manna. They didn't eat that day until the evening meal. Now the Lord provided water, didn't he? And the Lord provided the quails and the manna. But you come to chapter 17, and you got a water issue again. They're thirsty. The Lord's going to solve it this way, this time. He tells Moses, take that rock, and he says, now you go to this rock here, and you smite the rock, and water will come out of that rock, and it'll be enough water to take care of the thirst of the people and also their cattle, everybody, everything. So Moses did it. Sure enough, he smote the rock. Water came out of the rock. Somebody said, how big was the rock, Brother Lawrence? I don't know how big the rock was. Maybe as big as this church building. Maybe it's about this big. I believe God could have brought the water out of a pebble. Don't you? He could have brought the water right out of a pebble. I don't care what the size of the rock didn't matter. It had nothing to do with it. 
He smoked whatever size rock it was, whatever rock it was that God told him to, and water gushed out of that rock, and it was an ample supply to take care of over one million people plus their cattle. Then they quieted down. But then I want to look at one last thing here. Right after that, you're going to find where the Amalekites come out to do battle against the Israelites. This is the first battle Israel fights. There's no record where Israel ever fought a battle in Egypt. Not one. God fought their battle for them and brought them out of there. And you're going to find that Israel has learned not only are they pilgrims, but they also need to be soldiers. We, I like to speak from time to time about how we're pilgrims and strangers here in this world. That's exactly how I trust I feel, I want to feel, I want to realize as a stranger I'm not at home. As a pilgrim I'm on my journey. I'm just traveling through this old low ground of sin and sorrow. And the old brother used to express it that way. You know, traveling through this low ground of sin and sorrow. And when I get on the other side of the banks of sunny deliverance, that's another expression I used to hear all my life. <laughs> Don't hear as much anymore. I'd kind of like to hear it again. I'll meet you on the other side of the banks of sunny deliverance. Well, one day we'll do that. One day we'll all be together on the other side of the banks of sunny deliverance. But right now I'm traveling through a low ground of sin and sorrow. As I travel through this low ground of sin and sorrow, I'm a stranger here. I'm a stranger here below. What it is, it's hard to know, the hymn writer said. I don't feel to be at home in this old world until I'm here at the house of God that Brother Tim, I thought, preached very well about this morning. Better be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord and dwell in the tents of the wicked. One day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Oh, just one experience here on Sunday morning tops anything you'll have all week long, I can assure you that. I'm a stranger traveling here in a pilgrim on my journey. Okay? And I need to add one more to that. I need to understand that I'm supposed to be a Christian soldier. Fighting the battles of life as we go along. Here's a battle. The first battle, the Amalekites come out. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau. Esau was the brother of Jacob. Esau one time vowed to kill Jacob. You go to Hebrews chapter 12, you'll find where Esau is called a profane person. The word profane means godless. He's an ungodly person. And these are his descendants. And they come out against the Israelites. And you're going to find four men here. You're going to find Joshua, Moses, Aaron, and Hur. Joshua is going to go down to the valley to be the leader of the army to do the battle. Moses is going to be on top of a hill. He's going to have Aaron on one side and Hur on the other over here. Now Joshua is going to use his skills as a soldier, as a commander and leader in the valley below. But he needs help. He's trusting in God in the battle below, but he's going to need some help, and Moses is going to provide that help because Moses is going to intercede on behalf of Joshua. That's what, when he lifts up his hands, what that indicates and symbolizes, to intercede on behalf of somebody. So his hands are held up. Now, it was very common for the Jewish people when they prayed to pray with lift, lifted up hands. Why was this? It, they were pointing to their, where their strength was coming from, and it's also symbolic of a person saying, I'm putting my entire complete dependence upon the God of creation, my heavenly Father, to take care of me, guide me, direct me, protect me, strengthen me, and give me all things I stand in need of. 
And that's what Moses is doing. Moses' hands get a little tired and they start coming down. Now, why would Moses a man of strength? If you go to the 34th chapter of Deuteronomy, you're going to find where Moses says his, uh, his eyesight was not dim and his force was not abated, which means the moisture of the body, which symbolizes the youth of the body. I believe Moses was just about as strong at 120 as he was when he was 40. So why is his hands getting weary? Because intercessory prayer, when done right, can be very taxing. We need to be interceding and praying for one another, interceding on behalf of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Aaron and her are going to lift his arms up. Here's a picture of cooperation. Here's a picture of support. Here's a picture of unity and oneness. Here's a picture of how four men, depending upon the God, the God of heaven, are going to win this battle. Joshua's fighting a battle in the valley. Moses interceding on his behalf. Aren't you glad that you have the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven today making intercession for you? Aren't you glad? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who shall separate us from the love of God? He says, Who is he that condemned? It's Christ that died for us. Yea, rather is risen again. Who's on the right hand of God and making intercession for us. In Romans 8, 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul says, For the Spirit helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession for us with moanings and groanings. you got the Spirit of God making intercession for you. you got the Lord Jesus Christ on the right hand of God making intercession for you. Go to um, Hebrews 9 and 24. It says here that the Lord Jesus Christ is uh, not in that place uh, a tabernacle made with hands, which is a figure of the truth, but in the heaven itself now to, to appear in the presence of God for you. That's what Moses, Moses trusting in the Lord, and he's interceding on behalf of Joshua. They win the battle. They defeat the Amalekites. And then chapter 18 is about Jethro coming, his father-in-law, who's going to give him some wise counsel. So we just hop over that, come to chapter 19. You know where they're at? They're at the base of Mount Sinai. Now each of these examples I've given to you this morning could be 45-minute hour message in itself. But what did I take from all of this? I see God delivering his people totally and completely in a situation where they never could have delivered themselves out of the land of Egypt. Sounds kind of like me and you and the elect family of God. If God had left us alone, we'd still be in ruination. We'd still be under the law of sin and death, right? But God delivers us out. And then God leads us. We don't have the, the cloud and the pillar of fire at night to lead us now, do we? But we got this right here which the Bible teaches very clearly, is like a light under our pathway and a lamp under our feet. Right? And then when I get hungry, I look to the Lord. I get thirsty, I look to the Lord. But I like to think about that being a spiritual hunger, a spiritual thirst at times. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Where are, they, where are you going to be filled at mostly? It's going to be right here in the house of God. We sing a hymn. Fill me, Lord. Fill me now with thy Holy Spirit. Fill me now. I'm going to close with an expression that I think about every time now and then. Found in the Psalms. When the Lord said unto Israel, Open thy mouth wide, 
and I will fill it. So is our mouth open? If so, how wide is it open? Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. He certainly filled it with the manna. He certainly filled it with the quails. He certainly filled it with the water coming out of the rock. He certainly filled it, my friends, when he gave them the, the made those uh, bitter water sweet. He certainly filled it whenever he brought them to Elam, where there were 12, palm, uh, 12 wells of water and the 70 palm trees. They opened their mouth wide and God filled it. So the question asked in Psalm 78 was this, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? I hope I've answered that question this morning.